Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an episode of Talking with Cancer, which in many ways I don't think anyone will be expecting. First off, you may be expecting me to be playing out a live interview recording with the amazing Lauren Marne. Well, we've had to delay that chat, unfortunately. We were due to speak at a live event at Soho House, and a couple of days before that event, a very sad loss occurred in and amongst the cancer community, which shook me, and I didn't even know this gorgeous individual. Her name was Nikki, Nikki Newman. I've been following her on Instagram for a while. She was a breast cancer patient. She shared her life on Instagram in a way that was very, very joyful, full of laughs and giggles and fun times and really making the most out of life. I mean, she was going on trips when she could. She was cooking and baking when she could. She was spending time with dear families and friends. She was celebrating life, basically, all whilst going through, you know, a pretty tough time in the last six months, really, because of the breast cancer that she was living with. You know, she talked openly about the fact that she end-of-life care and hospice care. She was in and out of hospital because her body was shutting down, basically, and her immune system was getting weaker and weaker. She kept getting high temperatures and infections, and she seemed to be in a lot of pain. I became quite invested in Nikki's life, and if I didn't see her on social media for a while, I was concerned and worried. And I am someone who never met Nikki, never had a relationship with Nikki, but because of the power of sort of sharing content as a user or a kind of voyeur or an audience member, I felt really drawn into her life and I felt like she was a part of my life, which sounds crazy saying that about someone I never knew. I mean, I guess, look, there were a lot of common factors that I found I related to. Like, I knew that she'd been on her own IVF journey, same as me. Obviously, following her cancer diagnosis, couldn't then go on to have children or conceive. I think she was around her late 30s, you know, very much in love with her lovely husband and 
So there were lots of things that I connected to with Nikki and also, you know, seeing her sort of five years down the line from her diagnosis and wondering myself, like, how things would play out for me. So very sadly, you know, she posted a story about the fact that she was coming to the end of her treatment. Her body couldn't really take it anymore. And there were no further, obviously didn't say exactly how long or know how it was going to end and how much longer she had left. But I think it was on the Monday. So this would have been a couple of weeks ago. There was this crazy, crazy lightning and thunderstorm. And one of the things that Nikki always showed on her Instagram was like, if there was thunder, she would go outside and listen to the thunder. She just loved, I guess, the kind of, I don't know, she just loved the strength in these thunderstorms and she loved to witness them and experience them. And she also became known for her tattoo, which was a lightning bolt and inspired a lot of people to get their own lightning bolt tattoos. And it was all about kind of grabbing life. You know, that was her motto. And that night there was a huge thunderstorm. And I remember it because very unusually, Monty jumped up on the bed and he never, ever does that. Like he always sleeps in his own bed in my room, but never on the bed. And this night he jumped up and he was scared of the thunderstorm. So I remembered the thunderstorm really well. And I think that was the day or around the time that Nikki died. And, you know, what followed was some really, really moving posts on her socials. One that she had written, obviously, before she died and it was posted after she died, and the other from her husband. And she has an amazing legacy. She has left behind an incredible legacy. But it was tough. It was really, really tough to acknowledge the end of her life. And it was, I found it very emotional. I was very, very sad about it. I'd been sad about knowing she'd had to stop treatment. I'd been sad about a lot of things. And um, I can acknowledge my sadness and it's absolutely valid but for people that knew Nikki I mean not least her family and her husband and her close friends you know this was incredibly incredibly sad like and I think you know what I remember when my father died of pancreatic cancer was in that loss there is so much sadness for all the times that that individual suffered with their illness and how that individual dusted themselves off and got up again and carried on. And of course, I'm also thinking about my own life, you know, the journey up to this point, 18 months since my diagnosis and all the things that have come with that, like everything I've had to face, how I've had to relate to my body, how I've had to interact with doctors and healthcare providers and professionals. And it is just so, so much for someone to handle. And I think when they get to the end of their life, part of that loss and that grieving is reflective of, you know, they've been through so much. And what comes with that feeling is also a sense of relief because you know the suffering has ended. And also there is always that question mark of how is this going to end or when is this going to end? That is always at the forefront of your mind. And with that person's death comes the release of that worry. And that is a huge weight lifted. So it's a very strange mixed bag of emotions. And 
Lauren Mann was good friends with Nikki. You know, I mean, this is just my assumption and I can't speak for her. I know she was open and vocal about how much she was struggling after Nikki's death. But I think what happens for her as well is it triggers so many people that she's lost to cancer. And one person's death must just kind of emphasise all the deaths and all the passings, not least Deborah James, who was also known as Bow Babe, who died last year in 2022. You know, Lauren and her were very close. They hosted the podcast, You, Me and the Big C together. And so I was definitely concerned, like how would Lauren feel about talking to me at this event, you know, and talking in front of an audience? And even though... Lauren is cancer-free. She's just recently celebrated being six years cancer-free. She's very much in the cancer world. And so she has talked a lot about carrying that identity with her. And that doesn't need to be a part of who she is anymore. But yet she sits in that space because she does such brilliant work in that space. So the morning of the event... I got a phone call to say that she's just in bits and doesn't feel up to doing the event that night. And I I completely understood. And I think, obviously, it was a shame because, you know, I was so looking forward to it and I was so looking forward to speaking to her. But I just have come to realise since my diagnosis that, like, any plan you make you have to be prepared that it may change, whether that's myself, because I'm not feeling up to it, or someone else, for whatever reason. And I think, like, my mindset before was a lot stricter in that realm. You know, if you made a plan, you stuck to it. That was it. Like, you stand by your commitments, and unless you really, really, really have to, you do it and you show up. And nothing's really too bad to mean that you can't do it and show up. Oh, my God. (laughs) Even just saying that out loud makes me feel really sad because it's like, that's so unhuman. You know, like, we have to be flexible and fluid. Things can change. People can change their minds. People should put themselves first. What I felt was that I said to Lauren, good for you. You need to show yourself as much compassion right now as you possibly can. Your heart is broken and you need to go through the motions of that. And the last thing you're going to need is to show up in an event and talk about topics relating to cancer in one way or another in front of an audience. So instead, you've got me. But also what you may be uncertain about is why there wasn't an episode last week, which I will explain. So obviously I had that and... That was fine. Like I said, that happens and it's okay. And you have to sometimes rearrange plans that you had. So I am going to be speaking to Lauren. That episode will probably go out quite a bit later in the series, probably around end of November time, something like that. So look out for that chat. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure, you know, it's going to be great. So yeah, that will be coming to the podcast, which I'm really happy about. But I wanted to share... What else has gone on? (laughs) The crazy, crazy last sort of week that I've had in my life. So I think when I last spoke on here, I was going in for my scan. And that scan was the first scan I had in two months of being on cabezantinib, which is the new treatment that I've been taking. 
And so I went in for the scan and what sometimes I will email my nurse like a day or two later to say, can I get the results? Sometimes I'll just wait. And I have my appointment coming up with Kate Newbold, my oncologist, three or four days later. So I had the scan on the Monday and the appointment with her was booked for the Thursday. And interestingly, I asked my mum if she wanted to come with me to that appointment. I knew my mum was keen to meet Kate and... You know, she's voiced it actually on here on the podcast that I kind of have made, not made the choice. I don't think it's particularly been conscious, but I've kept those appointments with my oncologist quite private. Like I either go on my own or I go with my husband, Dinch. You know, it is extremely personal what goes on in those appointments. And even though obviously I voice a lot of them here on the podcast, particularly going in to get scan results is a very anxiety inducing time. But... I knew, like I said, my mum wanted to meet her and I felt like maybe this was the time. This was an opportunity for them to meet. So I had that already planned. But what happened was I was getting myself ready because I was supposed to be doing this event on the Wednesday and I went and treated myself to a manicure. And while I was having a manicure, my phone started to ring and I looked at the screen and it said Kate Newbold. And I thought, okay, this is either going to be really good news or this is going to be really bad news. And at the time I was speaking to my best friend, Katie, who has been on this podcast, by the way, in case you want to listen back to that lovely episode. And I said, I've got to go, Kate's phoning me. So I picked up the call and I was a little bit shaky and I said, Kate, hi. And she said, hi, Katie. I know I'm seeing you tomorrow, but I just wanted to share the good news with you. I've got your scan results in front of me and your scan results say that there is no sign of disease in your body, no sign of cancer. It's not there. I mean, even just repeating this, it gives me chills. I have to say, (laughs) I started to cry. I told her I loved her. (laughs) I told her I wanted to give her a hug and I told her I was having my nails done. (laughs) And I said to her, oh my God, This is absolutely amazing, Kate. I said, listen, I know you're not telling me like I'm free of cancer and I'm free to go. Like I know that I am sort of living with a chronic illness, if you like. But this is the most unbelievable happy news. And I was just overjoyed. I mean, totally overjoyed, totally tearful and totally overjoyed. And I'm now like 10 days later, I still don't think I can really believe the news. It's just amazing. Suddenly, all that tiredness I was feeling, it disappeared. I was running on adrenaline. I was feeling absolutely amazing. And I said to the nearest and dearest, some of my friends who were planning to come to the event that evening, let's just go anyway. Let's meet up anyway and have a drink and celebrate my good news. So we did that, which was really good. I mean, Dinch and I haven't been out to have a drink with friends in so long. So that was really, really special. There were about 10 of us sharing Prosecco, cheersing, I should say, cheersing with our bubbly Prosecco. It was an amazing evening and kind of crazy at the same time and very surreal. The next day, I go in to see Kate with my mum and she read me the report and I've got it here in front of me. I asked for a printout and 
It says, findings, compared with July 2023, the current study is interpretable as a complete response. The thyroidectomy bed is clear. The bilateral neck nodes have normalised in size and appearance. The lymphangitis has resolved. Only a few tiny non-specific opacities remain. That was the lung area, by the way. That was what was causing the cough. The intrathoracic and retro peritoneal nodes have normalized in size and appearance. That was around the abdomen. There is no metastasis in the solid upper abdominal organs. There is no aggressive bone abnormality. Opinion, interpretable as a complete radiological response. (laughs) An amazing scan result. I feel like I should frame that. You know, we asked the question, me and my mum, like, what does this mean? What's next? And she said, well, I'm keeping you on the cabozantinib. I'm lowering the dose. I'm now on 40 milligrams a day. I started on 60, then we lowered it to alternate 60 one day, 40 the next, and now I'm on 40. And she wants to scan me in two months. Because as far as the medical team are concerned, you know, they've always told me this isn't curable. They've always told me the Ross one, like once it's turned on, you can't turn it off. And I've got such mixed feelings. I mean, I have got such mixed feelings. I think the first is that I need to maintain my health where it is in terms of feeling I can be my optimum health I can be and carry on doing all the things that I've been doing. The acupuncture, the yoga, the exercise with Sean, my trainer, the supplement plan that I'm on, which includes the mushrooms, the healthy eating as much as as can, important emphasis on my sleep hygiene, taking rests when I need to, but not like overdoing the rests, being in nature, having meaningful relationships, loving, kind, caring relationships. And I guess kind of like the cherry on the cake is my belief. And my belief is that I can live cancer-free. Now, Of course, my biggest fear is getting a different result down the line and everything changing course. But you know what? I just need to be in the now and I need to celebrate this good news for what it is today because it is just so unbelievably amazing. It's a day I really thought, it's a funny thing I was about to say it's a day I thought would never come. I don't think that's totally true. You know, if you ask my nearest and dearest around me, I have said to them, it's going to go. I even said that to Kate once. And I don't know how expressive I've been about that on here. I think it's interesting for you listeners to kind of draw your own conclusions about that. You know, recently I've talked a lot about radical remission and I've been so interested in those stories and those studies. So I put this result down to a lot of things. I don't put it down to one particular thing. It is just amazing. And obviously, what I want is to be able to get off the treatment. So that's the goal that I am heading towards. Now, what's happened uh, in that appointment with Kate was that, as always, they take my bloods when I go just to check what my levels are like before they give me another cycle of treatment. And my calcium had dropped right down to 1.6. So I've talked on here before about the impact of surgery and how that left me with hyperparathyroidism because they took out a parathyroid gland and the other three were probably damaged. These are tiny little 
grain of rice size glands that sit around your thyroid. So it's very common in neck surgery for them to get damaged or removed. And they're never going to get back to where they need to be, which means that I will always have to be on medication to basically there's two types of medication that I take. I take alpha calcidol. And what that does is kind of encourages the body to open up the pathways that allow your vitamin D to release calcium into your body. Something like that. Okay. That's the gist of it. So I take that every day. And then I also take these effervescent calcium tablets. And those doses have changed a little bit since my surgery. So that's in about the 14 month period. But they were more or less in quite a good place. And my calcium was around a 2, 2.2 level, which is quite good for someone with hyperparathyroidism. Anyway, what's happened is I've recently seen a new endocrinologist. I took it upon myself to start seeing someone. I thought it was important to get that stuff in check. And there was a slight dose change on that medication. And at the same time, what we now know is that the cabazantinib in some people, of course, it's unusual, which means, of course, it's going to happen to me it can reduce your calcium. So I was basically rushed into ICU, put on a drip of calcium over a course of 10 hours. And the reason you have to do that in ICU is because they have to monitor your heart while it's happening. So I was all linked up to these machines and stayed overnight in hospital. This is all after getting the good news. It was just like, what? I can't even digest this good news because here I am in hospital dealing with this. Now, the thing is, I don't get any symptoms. And the only way you can measure calcium is with a blood test, which is ridiculous. Like, surely they've got to come up with another way of people with this issue being able to monitor their own calcium. Anyway, doesn't seem to exist. So because I don't get any symptoms, I mean, the symptoms can be like, they can be basically pins and needles in your hands and feet and a kind of tingling pins and needles in your lips. Now I get it a little bit, but it never seems to get worse or to a place where it's, you know, seems to be at emergency levels. The only thing I think it has impacted me on is my levels of exhaustion and fatigue, which I've talked about on here. I felt extremely tired lately. So the last reading I have of calcium was a month ago and it was 1.9. So it's now it was at 1.6. So I go in, I'm on the ICU. My mum's still with me. I stay overnight and they keep monitoring me and taking my blood. So like all my veins have had needles in them basically by this point. And the endocrinologist says, look, you know, your levels have gone up, but of course we need to keep an eye on them because the likelihood is they're going to go down again. And she said, we want you to stay another night. So I said, okay, listen, I'm not going to lie. Like I was on a ward. I was the only patient. The nurses were incredible. I had my own room. I had my own bathroom. Weirdly and unusually, the hospital food was actually all right. So I just thought, this could be so much worse. I could be feeling unwell. You know, I could have to be like dealing with an array of things in my home life that would mean I couldn't just suddenly drop everything. I just like I said to Dinch and my mum, it's fine. Okay, I'll just have to stay put and do what they say. Dinch said, just behave. And we had a holiday booked a couple of days later. And I was so convinced we were still going to make this holiday, which was ridiculous of me. So I basically was then sent home after another two nights. I stayed both nights in the ICU ward. And I 
I'm still having to have my medicine adjusted to try and get it to a place where actually my calciums can sit at a good level again. I have a theory that what's happening now is the cabezantinib, which is the cancer treatment, it's done its job on the cancer and it's just kind of working instead on this. And I don't know how true or realistic that is, but it's just what I think strange is that, you know, I've been on this drug, this treatment for two months and it's only now that it's starting to impact on the calcium. So it's always a guessing game with these things. And I now am like increase the medication again and just going to have to keep being monitored. We've moved our holiday by a week, which is fine. But oh, my God, do we need that holiday so bad? And I just have to go in again to have bloods done. And what they will also monitor is like my urine over 24 hours to see whether I am like peeing out too much of the calcium. And that's one of the problems. Oh, so yeah, it's been an incredibly, incredibly eventful time. It's had highs and lows and sadness and disbelief. One of the things I felt when I got the good news was like, I really want my story to be one of hope for other people. And by the way, like I know hearing this news, it can be really triggering because you might be listening and you might have lost someone to cancer. You yourself might have cancer and be in a really tricky stage with that diagnosis. And I want to be sensitive about my news. Like, of course, I want to celebrate it. But I also know that, like, that might not be easy for other people to see or hear or digest that news. Like, and I understand that because I myself have been in that position. You know, I remember one of the first times I went to the Maggie Center and one of the women said, I'm about to have my last treatment or I'm celebrating my last treatment. And I just, tears came to my eyes because I just thought, will that ever be me? You know, you see people on social media who are rejoicing with good news and you're going through a hard time yourself. But I guess what I feel is that you have to have hope. That doesn't mean that hope represents everything being okay, in inverted commas, like that you're going to get through it and survive it. Some of us might not. Some of us might go through really, really difficult times with this. Like, we don't know what the future holds. But I think we have to go on that journey and go on that ride and be curious and see it as an experience. See whatever challenges come your way as an experience. And I think like when the struggles are real, they're real, absolutely real. And I'm not saying when those times come to just skip along and everything's fine and just focus on the rainbows and the good times. No, and be in the struggles, you know, be in those struggles, be in those hard times, but know that like things change and nothing is a constant and nothing is forever. And... I think that that is just, you know, something I want to offer, I suppose, because if I can be an inspiration, even though I hate that word, then great. If I can give you hope, then that's great. If I can help you to believe in another way of dealing with difficult times, what really, I kept beating the drum this year that I have a medical narrative and I don't have to believe that narrative myself. That doesn't have to be my own narrative. So I have stopped saying that the cancer I have is incurable but treatable. And I have been saying the medical team have told me the cancer I have is 
incurable but treatable because that's their version of events. So I just think like when things look really, really, really bad, which they have for me, you do not know. You do not know what the future holds. And I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know what this means. I really do not know what this means. But one thing I know for sure is no one knows what this means. So that gives me hope, actually. And that gives me belief and encouragement to carry on doing what I'm doing, you know, and to own it myself. So one of the doctors said to me when I was in the hospital recently was, he came in and he said, I'd not met him before, but he said, I understand that you are very involved in your healthcare and you're very knowledgeable about what's going on. And he said, that is brilliant. As a doctor, I commend you for that. And I love that. And he said, not enough patients are like that. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. Like, I don't know whether it's culturally like in the UK, because we are used to having a welfare state or whether this is kind of universal but we feel that someone else should really take care of our health, that it's someone else's job to manage it and run it for us. That's just crazy talk to me. Like, you've got to own it yourself, you know, and I come to understand more about my body and what it means to be hyperparathyroid and what it means to have a calcium deficiency. And by the way, like, I'm not suggesting I know as much as any endocrinologist or doctor out there, but... I've started to kind of get a little bit of a grasp for it. And what I realize is like, I need to share as much information as I have about myself with all the different medical experts that I come across. Because when they see you, like, for example, when I went into ICU, like they just see my blood results there and then they don't know what my normal is. So what they might think is a bit on the low side could be totally normal for me or vice versa. And so I was sharing as much knowledge as I had, you know, and that means getting your test results sent to you and sharing those with all of your team and telling each doctor before you see them, like, this is what's happening. This is where I'm at, because it allows them to form a picture of you as an individual. So everything I've been banging on about, the self-advocacy and the taking control of your health, all of those things, I think have really helped me to grasp and move forward with where I'm at. And obviously, like now, it's like, I really need to get this calcium in order. And my fear is that the cabozantinib is going to be preventing that from happening. And the only result will be to come off the cabozantinib. And then what, like, what does my body do without that treatment? Like what happens, you know, in a way I'm kind of curious, but obviously the sort of the disaster zone would be like, come off it. And there is evidence of the cancer coming back or, you know, who knows, who knows, we don't know. So there are a lot of moving parts at the moment. It's quite a lot to grasp, but whilst I'm going through those moving parts, I am absolutely skipping for joy. <sighs> I've got a lovely voice with cancer this week from someone who I know is a bit on the shy side. So when she did this, I was really chuffed to bits. It's from someone who I know I've known for a long time. Since my cancer diagnosis, we've sort of, our paths have crossed a lot more because she goes to Maggie's Royal Free and we've been doing the Nordic walks together and she always checks in to see how I am, which is so, so sweet. And she's always really kind and generous and sends me things when she knows I'm having a hard time. So I am going to play that for you now. 
My name is Juliet Simmons and I was diagnosed with stage 3 grade 3 breast cancer in August 2021. Since my diagnosis, I have had chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery. As one friend put it, I've been poisoned, burned and cut open. And I'm now on a combination of three drugs, including a relatively new one that I feel lucky to be able to take that will hopefully reduce my risk of recurrence, which is higher than average. This time of year brings up all kinds of feelings for me, and I wasn't quite sure where to start or what to say when recording this. A wise friend once told me that if I got stuck with something, I should just make a list. So that's what I've done. Here is my list of five things that have helped me through the past two years and continue to help me today. One, find your tribe. You might have more than one tribe, I do, but these are the people that get you and lift you and make you feel better. They might be your friends and family, they might be the people who you see walking their dogs every day, who miss you when you don't show up and hug you when they do. They might be people that you see in places like Maggie's or Future Dreams, or the friends that send you WhatsApp messages or care packages out of the blue. Whoever they are, I hope you can find them. Two, remember that it's a gift to be able to move your body. In addition to all my prescribed medicines, exercise has been transformative for me. Sometimes I don't recognise the person who signed up to do a fundraising half marathon trek to raise money for the charity Future Dreams. Or the person who goes walking every day, or the person who does strength training. But getting into nature, being outside, moving my body and feeling strong makes me feel better. Three, make stuff. When I was having treatment, my friends made a beautiful quilt out of cyanotype fabric with me. That's fabric that turns blue in the sun. The act of making and creating was something that I could do when so much was out of my control and something beautiful emerged from the darkest of times. Four, Embrace joy and remember that the small things are actually the big things. Having a coffee, walking a friend's dog, sitting on a bench, eating crisps, giving someone a hug, dancing. These small things and more really matter. And five, know your normal. If something looks or feels wrong with your body, get it checked out. You're not wasting anyone's time and you could save your life. Thank you, Katie, for asking me to record something for you. I hope my list is helpful to someone other than me. Now I'm off for a walk. Oh, that's actually made me feel quite emotional because, well, it's wise and it's all really valid. And, yes, it's got the waterworks going for some reason. I think you've got to take learnings from this stuff and it's so wonderful to share those learnings with other people. So that is a really, really valid list, Juliet. And I think, you know, this goes back to a lot of what I was talking with Rosamond Dean about and a lot of what her book is about. Like, how do you deal with being told there's no cancer left? How do you deal with that news? There's so much to kind of absorb with that news because for me right now, it's about time. How long will this news be true for me? And it's about feeling like I've been given a second chance. You know, my uncle called me when he heard the news and he said, 
you know what this means. It means do not stand in front of a bus. It's like life feels so much more precious now. It just feels so much more precious. It was weird being in hospital because, you know, hospital is actually a place where like you go to get better, but there's a lot more risk when you're in hospital of catching something. It's quite a scary place to be. And I just thought, please, you know, I've come this far. Like, please don't let things go bad from here. To give you some kind of context, if your calcium drops really, really low, then you can have a cardiac arrest. And the fact that I don't get symptoms makes it even more scary. You know, like some people, their hands clamp up or like all their muscles kind of tense up and cramp up. There's at least a sign that it's happening or coming. It's not the case for me. So um, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit, but I think that experience as much as it being this good news follow bad news. It's like, don't let that be the thing that kills me, okay? <laughs> so yes, thank you, Juliet. That was a really, really lovely voice note. And thank you, everybody, for listening, for being here, and for following my journey and stories so far. It's definitely never a dull moment. I hope that you'll agree. And I have got some really interesting interviews coming up I've talked about before. So next week, I will be playing out the interview with the brilliant Jane Hutchison, who started the cancer charity Hello Beautiful. I'm also interviewing Dr. Nina Fuller-Shavel, which is a great interview. That's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks. And she launched Synthesis Clinic, uh, which is an integrative healthcare clinic. And I'm actually going to be having a consultation with her next week. So I'll let you know how that goes. I've also interviewed Catalina de Anna Portella, who founded the brilliant mushroom supplement company, Hifas de Terra, who are based in Spain, who I've talked about before. So yeah, stay tuned. I've got some great chats coming up with people and I'll keep you posted on my news as ever. Loads of love to you all, wherever you are in the world, because I do have a global audience, which warms my heart to know that there are people listening from all different corners of the world. I love that. And I will speak to you very soon. Loads of love. Bye. Bye.